0: There were some years back when I was doing a lot of jobs outside of church uh, just to make ends meet, um, and uh, at that point I sort of discontinued making regular trips up to Dolgeville, uh, where pastors in New York State would meet uh, at least four times a year. It was, has been our pattern, and i would long since uh, quit um Doing that. I think they continued to send me invitations through the years, but I just didn't have the ability to get myself free to do it. And then uh, as things began to change and uh, my commitments outside of the church began to um, not be so pressing and I began to have more time, uh, Roy and Joan from Greentown came and visited one Sunday evening. And uh, they're from the church in Dolgeville. And so when I said, you know, I would really like to go back and uh, you know, be involved again with uh, the pastors in New York State, um, they called up uh, Pastor Byerly <laughs> the very, I guess, the next day or maybe it was even that night. And uh, I sort of had the welcome mat thrown out for me and I began to attend again. And after a few months, uh, I think it was the time when I was out in Colorado, I think, maybe not, maybe it was a subsequent time. I seem to remember the Colorado visit. When I got a phone call from uh, Pastor Sarver from the Albany Baptist Church, and he asked me if I would uh, if I would speak at the next meeting, and uh, I agreed to do do that. And I think I mentioned to him one of the things I thought I would do since it's been such a long time since I was involved with those guys, and such a long time since I'd spoken to them. Um, that I might consider, I was thinking, germinating in my mind the thought of speaking about the things I've learned in the past, I think it was about time, 30 years, or things that I would wish I had known when I began ministry, something like that. and. It was in my mind to do that, and I, I mapped out some some ideas, but, but I never delivered that message, and Pastor Sarver always, after, thereafter, said, well, when are you going to tell us what it is that you've learned for the past 30 years? I was thinking about that this morning, and I think if I was to deliver that sermon, if I was to address the question of what I've learned in the last 30 years, I I probably, or 40 years now, it's almost 40 years since I've been in the ministry here in Pine Bush, I would say that principally the thing I learned is how little I, I knew when I entered into the ministry. And I think I entered the ministry, as lots of pastors do, with a great deal of confidence that, hey, I've gone through seminary. I've gone through a difficult course of study, and I pretty much have. um mastered uh, much of the theology of God's word. I'm now competent and able to teach it to others. And I think at this point, like, I didn't know what I didn't know is the point of it. But I really think that if I was to start all over again from this point, and God was to give me another 40 years to do this, I probably at the end of that period would also say, I thought I knew a whole lot in 2023. How little I really knew. Because really, this whole matter of our serving God, our this whole matter of our Christian discipleship, this whole matter of our reading and studying the Word of God um, always brings additional understandings, insights, um, that um, just a passage of time and walking with the Lord uh, brings us to... Understand, and I'm going to say a little bit about that in the morning worship from the passage in John chapter 17. That uh, we're always growing in the; I mean, we never have full and comprehensive knowledge, and uh, what we don't know is far greater than what we do know. Almost at any point in our walk with the Lord, so humility is the first thing that disciples ought to know. Um, you know, I think it was Augustine was asked the question, what is the greatest thing in the growth and grace? And his answer was, humility, 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 repeating it three times. I think that was also uh, something, I forgot who it was, uh, that, you know, the real estate people say it's location, 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 <laughs> people in other areas. wanting to emphasize, they repeated three things, three things. Well, the same thing. But if you learn that, you really learn so much. And in Christian discipleship, humility is certainly a key, to, key and and vital. And think of that with the study of the Book of Romans. Just uh, you know, I preached on it back in the day, uh, earlier in this. Uh, This millennium, in the early 2000s, I preached a series of messages. We're going through it again now. And I think that if you compare the two, um, it would be really greatly different because my understanding of God's Word has become greatly different. And in an appreciable way, the thing that I think is more different, at least consciously, as I come to the text of Scripture to study it, I'm really more concerned than I've ever been before of what does the Bible actually say what is the text actually telling us? What is really there? Because I think that's the, 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 um, the temptation or just the thing that we do when we come to God's Word is we, we just assume that it says pretty much, a little bit more or less, of what we already know and believe. And so I'm not going to really come to God's Word and find it many surprises, I'm going to come to God's word and simply be confirmed in my own understanding of things. And that's even true with people that do a lot of study. You know, so a lot of people think if you read a, read a lot of commentaries, you're really going to learn a lot. Well, that might be the true, true, but the point is that commentators tend to repeat what other commentators have said. They tend to learn from one another. Not that the exercise is a, a vain one, it's an important one, because you're interacting with the history of interpretation. You're interacting what God's people filled with the Holy Spirit in other ages have thought about the text of Scripture. And you just assume they were wrestling too with the text of Scripture. But they're wrestling with the text of Scripture from their church doctrine, from their uh, living experience, the things that they are going through. And you really cannot wholly extract Uh, yourself as a student of God's word, from uh, your training, your education, your beliefs, your church teaching, the situation in life that you're passing through, all those things present themselves. But as situations in life tend to change, sometimes our insights into God's word also um, changes. I think that's one of the reasons Luther thought that it was suffering that made you a real student of the Word of God. Punched in the midst of st- suffering, you kind of relate to the experiences of suffering the psalm writers experienced, and their lamentations become more understandable when you go through. Uh, your own uh, reasons for lamenting uh, before the Lord. Um, so, so much of that is true, um, but it's so important that when we do come to God's Word, we try to recognize our prejudices, we recognize our pre understandings. What well, things we, okay, I'm seeing that because, well, I've gone through a situation like that that I think is similar, but then the question is it really similar? Is what David is what David is going through now the same as what I'm going through? And really try to evaluate, really try, at least raise the question. And a lot of times, one of the reasons we just get into a rut in biblical interpretation is that we don't ask the right questions. We just make assumptions. We just assume my situation, his situation is the same. And we never really raise the question, well, really, is it? Let me think this through. Let me try to really understand David's situation and how it relates to... And you might find it's different. At least raise the question. So, many, um, so much of learning, I, I've come to think, is just asking better questions. And also, do, being better readers. Just being better readers of the text. Just coming to the text with more of an open mind that maybe you've been wrong. Maybe you've not seen things as they really are. And the book of Romans is a real illustration of that. I mentioned some weeks back that people tend to approach Romans thinking they know what it is. It's uh, Paul's systematic theology, it's Paul's presentation of uh, all of the great truths of scripture presented in a systematic way, you know, beginning with sin, and then moving to grace, and moving to uh, assurance, and moving to the spirit, and the law, moving to the spirit. Well, not really, not really. Paul is really not doing that. It's not that he doesn't discuss those things, but just not in that systematic way nor is it a manual for evangelism it's another thing I've said that it often is construed as being but it's also construed as being lots of other things, it's uh, it's Paul's great polemic against Roman Catholicism (laughs) you you read Luther and you think that's what it is of course Luther's struggle was with Roman Catholicism but Paul didn't know the church at Rome. It wasn't really a struggle against Roman Catholicism. Um, So, really, what is it? What What is the letter to the Romans? Well, I just told you what it is. It's a letter. It's a letter. And it's to the Romans, not the Not the Roman Catholic Church. Again, Catholics would think, well, Paul wrote a letter to the Romans. That must make, it's the biggest letter in the New Testament. That must make Rome the principal city. It must make Rome the greatest church. And it must make Rome uh, the place that we're to look to for all our insights. Well, the reality is Paul writes this letter to Rome. He says nothing about anything like a Pope or a Vatican or anything like the centrality of the uh, Roman Catholic system. No, it's a church at Rome. And it's a church that had a history. It's a church that had a history in that it was founded likely, not by Paul, not by Peter, not by one of the apostles, but likely those that were in the city in Jerusalem when the day of Pentecost had come and the Spirit of God was given. We read in Acts chapter 2 that there were Jews from all parts of the empire that came. And they all had their dialects. They all had their languages that they spoke from the places they had come from. And that they heard the Word of God um, in not their language uh, they, they, they heard the word of God in the tongues that were spoken um, uh, in, in a way that was understandable to all the, the peoples um, that were there they heard the word of God um, in, in this matter of the miracle of, of the tongues and there were people there from Rome is the point I want to get at is that there were people there from Rome so likely with the 3,000 souls that were saved on the day of Pentecost there were the people from Rome they went back to Rome who were they? They were probably mostly Jews. There might have been a few God-fearers. There were Gentiles that worshipped in the synagogue, sprinkled in the midst of it. But largely, when the church at Rome began, it was largely a Jewish church. And then, in the course of time, we read in Acts chapter 18, that Aquila and Priscilla had lately come from Rome because the imperial decree of the Caesar was all the Jews needed to depart from Rome. Remember that? I think it was Tiberius that made that decree. All the Jews had to get out of Rome. And so Aquila and Priscilla came to um, uh, Corinth and met Paul. And they had the same trade. They worked together, founded a friendship. And they became uh, involved with the church at Corinth. But at this letter, they're back in Rome. Uh, They're back in Rome. Uh, because the Jews were permitted back at Rome. So, what probably happened? You probably had a church that was begun by Jewish people, Roman, uh, Greek uh, people, when the Jews were evicted from Rome, became the predominant leaders. They became the predominant people. Jews had to leave, and now Jews had come back. And does that cause problems? Well, you better cause problems. There's a great diversity of tastes and understandings and background and education and culture that were true of Jews versus the Greek peoples. And so when you come to the book of Romans and you find Paul in chapters 9, 10, and 11 having this lengthy discourse about his love for the Jewish people and the whole matter of Jewish unbelief and Gentiles being grafted in... um, It's part of Paul's understanding of the situation in Rome that's brought him to raise that question among that particular grouping of people and then in 14 and 15 it's the question of uh, keeping of days and diet restrictions that Jewish people had and it made them different from the Gentiles and how they were to receive one another because Jesus Christ had received them And there to have, have a conscience before God knowing that it's before the judgment seat of Christ we're all going to come and God's able to make a stand whether you're a vegetarian or whether you're a meat eater whether you keep this particular day or do not keep that particular day you do it unto the Lord and so he's looking to have these people within the church that have these differences of background and culture and sensibilities and dietary things and days they keep and days that they don't. And uh, the problem to judge one another, discount one another, be standoffish towards one another, not receive one another. And you know, it doesn't just begin when you get to 9, 10, and eleven. That's like a formal statement about Jewish unbelief and Gentile inclusion. And it doesn't just have to do with the days and diet uh, matters of 14 and 15. It really begins in chapter 1 when Paul uses unparalleled expressions. You don't find him saying anywhere else in any of the other letters to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He says it twice in Romans 1 and then in Romans 2. Context of the gospel coming, Jew first, also to the Greek; the righteousness of God revealed, Jew first, also to the Greek, and then in judgment, Jew first, also to the Greek, and then long statements in chapters two, uh, two, uh, and three uh, about the Jews. Why is he doing that? Well, he's not looking to so much speak to the issue of, well, how do we understand justification and preaching it to the lost? He's thinking of how does justification apply to the saved. He's thinking of how do the people in the church relate to one another because we're all in the mess of sin together all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now we take that passage, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, and we say, well, that's a message to the lost, right? That's the, the first point in the Romans Road. <laughs> if you look at the track, remember the track, the Romans Road? First thing is all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, let's go out there and preach to the lost that all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, by application, that's true, of course. You can preach sin to the lost. That all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Except in the context of Romans chapter three it's not what Paul is saying he's saying there's no distinction you guys at Rome between Jews and Gentiles in the church all of you're in the same mess you've all sinned fallen short of the glory of God no one has a step above the other no one can say I'm a I'm, I'm more advantaged I'm in better position I'm no you can't do that We're all in the same mess with regard to sin. And you know what the problem is with viewing Romans 3, 23 as a text mainly to unbelieving people to convict them of sin is the fact that the very next verse says that the same people of whom he says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God it says about these people and they are justified. Well I have a a clue for you. Unbelieving people are not justified. These people are justified. These people are all in sin together and they're all justified together by the grace of God as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So again, when you take the verse out of its context, and then you say, well, it's a text for evangelism, you can get a little bit of trouble there, because you can have everybody saved. <laughs> no need for evangelism then, if everybody, regardless of faith, although it does say faith. But if you're saying the same people here that have, fallen, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God are also being justified. Paul's, Paul's addressing a church. He's addressing a church with their needs, with their context, with their troubles, with their divisions, with their struggles, and we need to read it in that way. And then make application to ourselves, make application to evangelism, make application to worship, make application to everything else we need to make application to if the applications apply. But the first job we have as readers of the Bible is to say, what does it mean in the context in which it's found? Don't take it out of the context. Read it within the context. So we've been looking at the book of Romans. We've been looking at Paul addressing the Jews by name in chapter two and verse seventeen. He says, "But if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast on God and you have all these things that you think about yourself because you're a Jew, and yet you you you're so cocksure that you're." this great person that's a guide to the blind a light to those that are in darkness an instructor of the foolish a teacher of children all these things this is how you see yourself and yet you dishonor God in your disobedience what's that boast all about? it's a vain boast the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you Paul says in quoting the book of Isaiah and then he tells them that this matter of circumcision is a value if you're a keeper of the law. Again, if that whole matter of circumcision in the flesh has a corresponding circumcision of the heart. Deuteronomy, Jeremiah 4, calls the people of Israel to have their heart circumcised. The hardness of the heart needs to be removed, that foreskin in the, in, in, of the soul that's impervious to the voice of God and the will of God needs to be removed, that you can hear God's word and do God's will and be a doer of the law and not just a hearer of it. And Paul says that then circumcision is of value and true uh, identity of a circumcised person can be true of a Gentile who keeps God's law. And we saw in Philippians chapter 3, that's how Paul really defines the church, that we are the circumcision. Say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm a Gentile. How am I the circumcision? Well, because of the operation of the Spirit of God in your heart. It's made you one who praises God from the heart. It's made you a keeper of God's law. You have an internal working of God's grace, which is what circumcision points to. Circumcision was meant to point to the inner reality of the circumcision of the heart. It points to the need for regeneration. And so a Gentile can be one who is truly circumcised. Verse 29 of chapter 2 ends, But a Jew is one inwardly, circumcision a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letters. Praise is not from man, but from God. And that's where he leaves us in chapter 2. And again, I think what Paul's trying to do He's trying to humble the proud Jew who thinks he has a step up on everyone else in the church because of his Jewish background. I'm a better Christian because I have Jewish training. And, uh, you know, so he wants to level that. He also wants to make it clear to the Gentile that Jews are not to be hated and despised. They have a great deal to offer because of their history. Because of the way God has dealt with them in their history, you owe your spiritual blessings to Jerusalem. That's what he's going to go on in chapter 15 to say, as the reason why they ought to be very liberal with their offering to the needy saints in Jerusalem. Because you got your spiritual blessings from them. You didn't get it from your Greek background. You didn't get it from your Greek philosophers. You got the blessings of the gospel from Jerusalem. So if you got their spiritual blessings, you can give them your carnal blessings, the, your material blessings. That's Paul's argument. He's looking to quell the the, the bitterness and the, the rancor, the, the 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 divisions that are present between Jew and Gentile that have risen in the church at Rome. And so then it's well understood what Paul's doing this balancing act of going back and forth between Jewish Humbling, humbling them in in their pride, but also praising them for their virtues and for the good that they do bring to the church. That's for the sake of the Gentiles needing to hear that as well. So, again, the whole picture ultimately is: we're all leveled. We're all leveled, leveled in sin, leveled in grace. No one has a step above the other. Y'all with me? But the question of chapter 3 and verse 1 is, then, if circumcision is just a matter of the heart, and anyone could get it, you know, to be a Jew, if it's nothing to do with external uh, uh, privileges and benefits uh, that you got because you're a Jew, what advantage has the Jew? What advantage has the Jew? What, oh, oh, oh. Is, is there such a thing as advantage that the Jew has? What value is there a circumcision, is the question. Is this all meaningless? I mean, circumcision was appointed by God. In the Abrahamic Covenant, it was something that was required of every Jewish male. Um, what advantage has the Jew? And his answer is, much in every way. And that's surprising, because you would think that that's not Paul's answer. And yet Paul says, there is advantage much in every way. And then it's interesting. He says, to begin with, here's the advantage. But he doesn't say, and then, and then, and then. Just to begin with, he makes a statement. The statement is, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. We'll, t- we'll deal with that in a minute. But you're expecting much in every way. He's going to say something more than just one thing. If it's much in every way, he's going to say a bunch of things. is matters of advantage. We didn't say it in chapter three, but that doesn't mean he doesn't say it. is who knows where he says it? He says it in this letter, but it's not in chapter three. Anybody know? It's in chapter nine. It's in chapter nine. Look at chapter nine. In the beginning, of this, these three chapters having to do with the people of Israel and the Gentiles, Gentile inclusion. He addresses this quite quite at length, and he begins by saying, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow, not anger, not bitterness, not loathing. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. Paul says, I'd be willing to be damned if it meant the salvation of these other people. And you say, how in the world can anybody say that? Well, I guess somebody who follows the Lamb, who went to the cross, died for our sins, says, I'd be willing to die for others. I'd be willing to perish for others. If Jesus experienced the anguish of hell for the sake of those for whom he came to die, I'd be willing to suffer the anguish. Love brings you there. Greater love is no man than this that a man gives his life for his friend. It's love that moves him here his love for his nation, his love for his people. Uh, Chapter 10 and verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And you know what he does? He gives seven statements of the benefits they had prior to the coming of Jesus. Seven things that were true of them, just as Old Testament people. Old Testament people. They're Israelites. To them, uh, uh, belong, number one, the adoption. Number two, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And he also says, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah. The Messiah comes through the Jewish what advantage is there to be a Jew most much in every way much in every way give the full picture to them belong the adoption the glory that's the glory of God's presence in the temple the Shekinah the covenants the Abrahamic covenant the Mosaic covenant the Davidic covenant the giving of the law the worship the promises the patriarchs Through them, Messiah has come into the world. Well, Paul kind of summarizes that in a sense when he says, I mean, all that stuff that we read about, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, all that is stuff you find in in what? Where do you find that? Hmm? Deuteronomy? no no again when you ask questions question in Sunday school basically there's two answers it's either Jesus or the Bible in this case it's the Bible you, you find it in the Bible right it's in the Bible you learn that they had the glory and the covenants Deuteronomy yeah sure but other places as well it's in the Bible those things are revealed and so Paul says to them were entrusted the oracles of God They were given a stewardship over the oracles of God. And if you have a loathing in your heart towards Jews and you think that they are just, the world would be better without them, and the horrible thing is there are people and people that call themselves Christians that have attitudes like that. They view Jewish people in that way. They have no other interest in the Jews and understanding what, how much you owe them. They were the stewards that preserved the word of God. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. And when you really think about it, it's an amazing thing that we have the Old Testament scriptures. It's an astounding thing that you have the Old Testament scriptures. We just don't. I mean, we have some writings from uh, Mesopotamia, from Canaan, that survive to this day, but really none of them were revered like these writings were. I mean, it's the oldest book that's been constantly studied, read, um, providing a framework for a culture, um, and it's the Jews that preserved it, preserved the knowledge of the God of Israel. Preserve the hope of the coming of the Messiah. Uh, really, Christianity would not exist for or not for the way in which the Jews being entrusted with the oracles of God faithfully carried out that trust in preserving God's word. No other reason. Thank God for the Jews. Bless God for the people of Israel. And then Paul asks the question: What if some were unfaithful? And some were, some were, and some are. Not all, but some. Perhaps you could say most. Most Jews did not come to faith in Jesus. Paul asks the question: Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Again, the oracles of God tell us that uh, God's promises were to Israel, and um, they did not believe. God was faithful to them, but they were faithless before God. And the reality is that the Old Testament scriptures don't don't um, paint the picture in colors that are flattering. <laughs> it paints the accurate pictures that the Jews, right from the beginning, were grumblers, complainers, stiff of neck, hard of heart. They made the golden calf. They they failed in their calling again and again and again and again. Read the book of Judges if you have any questions about that. Does that mean God is unfaithful? Does that nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. But God be true, though everyone were a liar. And as it is written, and he quotes David in Psalm 51. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you you are judged. And remember the background. We'll turn to Psalm 51 for a minute, and let's just look at the context in which that's found. The heading, which uh, interestingly enough is in the oldest manuscripts we have of the Old Testament, these headings, in fact, in the Jewish uh, Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, or actually verse 1. Verse 1 of the Hebrew Bible uh, has the heading. We have it as the heading, but it's actually part of the scriptures in the Hebrew Bible. It's verse 1 of Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is on the backdrop of David's sin and committing adultery with Bathsheba and setting up her husband to be killed. And it's a psalm of mercy, pleading with God for mercy, pleading with God for his compassion upon him. Um, and it's not something that pleads before God for justice or reward reward me according to my my integrity. You know, psalm 17 says things like that, but this is not a psalm that speaks of integrity. This is a psalm that speaks of sinfulness. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. In the English it's verse Two in Hebrews verse three, but that's how it goes in the Hebrew. The the, the enumeration is different because the headings are made part of the psalm or part of the psalm. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you, you only have I sinned. Now he sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he sinned against uh, Uriah, wickedly and selfishly, and and just with a high hand and with a hard heart and it, it was just appalling appalling I mean in essence, he used his place as a king to to rape a, a woman who's someone else's wife to seek to possess her by power and force when her husband is defending his na- his armies out in the field, he tries to set up uh, uh, Uriah as the one who's the father of this child is now conceived but uh, that not working he sets him up to die in, uh, in, in the war and yet he says against you Lord you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight as horrible as it was what he did to Bathsheba as awful as what it was that he did to Uriah he sees the principally in the midst of all of his transgressions against human beings he's transgressed against the God of the covenant he's transgressed against his God and then Paul says, "I'm sorry," uh, uh, David says that uh, uh, this transgression, that's a high hand and with a, 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 a hard heart against the living God, is is that he acknowledges that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, that's those are the words that Paul quotes in Romans chapter three. In other words. I'm not in any position to bargain. I'm not in any position to dictate to you, Lord, what the ramifications of my sin should be. You're free to do with me as you will because I have no rights in this matter. I I can't come before you and plead with you as Job did. I'm innocent. My hands are clean. My heart is pure. My heart's not clean. My hands are not clean. And Lord, what what you do in the face of that... I I can't argue with. I can't. I'm not in a position to to bargain. And so, if you say the child's going to die, the child's going to die. If you say there's going to be war and conflict within my family, well, what am I going to do? Whatever you bring, Lord, you are right to bring. And something of that attitude of of a, of a humbled, contrite heart, recognizing the reality of a sin. Uh, that probably informed David's life from that point forward Uh, when he fled Jerusalem at the rebellion of Absalom I remember there was that guy Shimei that came and began to curse him and his his attitude was simply the Lord has sent him he just endured it he just put up with it he says Lord whatever, whatever you bring from this point forward I'm not in a position where I can say I don't deserve it I'm not in a position to say that I can bargain with you for something better what you were pleased to do, I fully deserve. Is basically what he's saying, and Paul uh, takes up those words. Whatever God does, He's right to do. You're justified in your words. You prevail when you are are judged. So again, our sins declare. The faithfulness and righteousness of God. The, you know, the air people today—they they say, "Well, I became a Christian, and but God didn't keep the deal with me." Yeah, I thought the deal was, "I become a Christian, and that means, you know, my wife is going to be a great wife, my kids are going to be great kids, my job's going to be a great job. I'm going to go from one great thing to another great thing," and the world does not work that way any Christian experience does not bring those, those things God says the only thing I promise is to be with you in the midst of the troubles and the trials and the difficulties and the disappointments that life definitely will bring, count on it God doesn't break deals God rules in wisdom and righteousness and in sovereign justice over a fallen world, and really in the midst of a fallen world, the only thing we could ever really expect is that God's promise to be with us will not fail us. I mean, you think, we're studying Jeremiah, and, and Jeremiah is ministering in the midst of the Babylonian captivity. And you know, he has a word to the exiles that have been taken already captive to Babylon. But you have to think, what was it like to be taken away by an army from your home, your family, your everything you knew, to be taken into a, a foreign culture? I mean, you would just be traumatized. You'd be traumatized. And you know, God's word to the exiles was a word of his comfort to, to settle down there and plant, you know, take a wife. <laughs> Plant a vineyard. Build your houses. Um, and, and, and God will prosper you in that place. It's not a promise to bring you home. It's not a promise to give you back all your, all your children. It's a promise in the midst of the trauma to be with you and, and to restore a future for you. To give a hope to you in the midst of trauma. But don't take the trauma away. It doesn't take the, the devastation away. Uh, and then, of course, Jeremiah himself just experiences one trauma after another, trauma after another trauma. He doesn't even get to go to Babylon. He gets to go to the places he's telling the people they're not to go. They take him away into Egypt. You know, what Jeremiah must have felt. And, of course, he's the weeping prophet. And, you know, early throughout his the book, there's the, the note of complaint and the note of, well, you know, Lord, you, you set me up. You, you know, he even feels God's been unfaithful, but God's not been unfaithful and that's the realization God's people need to come to that in the midst of a fallen world um, we're all under sin and being all under sin how God deals with us is always in ways of righteousness and justice and then Paul looks to turn that around or at least he raises the question in verse 5 but if, if this is true if our sins prove that, 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 that God is faithful that um, God is always true that his words of judgment are always right I mean you think of the unfaithful Israelites Um, I mean the reality is that those promises were always conditioned upon faith and faithfulness the covenant God made with the Israelites at Mount Sinai said if you take my word and do it but they didn't take God's word to do it they presumed upon temple they presumed upon privilege they presumed upon their ancestry we have Abraham as our father they were still doing it in Jesus' time and um That just simply won't wash. God is faithful. If our unrighteousness, he then raises the question, serves to show the righteousness of God. In other words, if I've sinned and I suffer for it, well, look, God is displayed as being righteous in the light of it. But then, ought not God to be pleased with me? I've allowed his righteousness to be revealed. I've really put it on full display. That God needs to lighten up. God must not be inflicting wrath on us. And Paul says, I speak in a human way. In other words, if everything turns out to show forth the, the glory of God and the, the attributes of God, well, well, how then could God uh, act in a way of inflicting wrath? How can he prove, uh, how can he do what, he, what says in Romans 1 he does in wrath? He gives them up. He gives him up? How could he do what he's said to do in the day, the day of wrath, uh, bringing anguish and affliction upon transgressors? Paul says, "Well, by no means. How how then could God judge the world? God will judge the world." He says, "If." Through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Hey, I'm glorifying God. I'm serving God. No, 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 no. The fact that God in his sovereignty and in his wisdom turns human evil out for good, turns human evil out to display his, his, his attributes of righteousness, that doesn't justify your transgression. In other words, we cannot be relieved of our responsibility because God's sovereign. Divine sovereignty does not rule out human responsibility. We are responsible to serve God. We're responsible to obey God. We're responsible to please God. Even if in his sovereign wisdom he turns out our evil for good. And Joseph could say to his brothers, You meant it for evil. God meant it for good, for the saving of many souls alive. Oh, what, what a relief! My evil was then becomes good. Look, it all worked out at the end. So doesn't the end justify the means? No. No. The end does not justify the means. because God brings about a gracious end, and a good end doesn't justify the means of hating your brother, of casting him into a pit, selling him to the Midianites. Doesn't justify it at all. It's a wicked act is a wicked act. then Paul addresses and why not do evil that good may come He end justifies the means as some people slanderously charge us with saying you preach the gospel in the world and people are going to say that when you present a sovereign God or that um, in the midst of human sin God works out or turns all things for the good to those who love him to those of the called according to his purpose not even in the midst of the, the worst sins of humanity that grace is offered. And this is a sample, of the sort of argument he's going to bring up in chapter 6, when he says, um, if, if, if sin um, causes God's grace to abound, why not continue in sin? That grace may abound. simply because we're responsible before God to obey him. We're responsible before God to do the good, to seek his pleasure, not be concerned with the consequences. Leave the consequences to God. Just go and do what you're told. (laughs) Just go and do. Seek seek faithfulness. Seek to be faithful before him. So, Again, Jews have advantages because they've been entrusted with the oracles of God. But that does not justify their faithlessness. It does not justify their unbelief. It does not justify the rejection of God's Messiah. Even if it's the end of the story, that allows the door of entry into the Gentiles to be brought into the kingdom of God. doesn't justify it. Unbelief is unbelief. And so then Paul draws the conclusion, what then? What then? What's the conclusion of all this? Are we Jews any better off? Well, again, I think to ask the question, are, are we better off, is different than the question of advantage. The Jews had an advantage. They're custodians of the law. They have access to the law. They have the word of God. That should have led them to the knowledge of Christ. You search the scriptures, for in them you have, you think you have eternal life. These are they that testify of me, and you will not come to me, that you might have life. In other words, God's put the means in your hands. God's put the, the living water before you. But, but uh, he's, he's not going to force you to drink it. <laughs> he invites you to drink it. He beckons you to drink it. I think even as good Calvinists we say, the offer is given... But that doesn't mean that God dunks your head into the water. No. I know by the mysterious operation of the Spirit He calls. I know that. I know that. I know He's the one that regenerates. I know that. By knowing the proclamation of the message of the gospel, this is not not something that He compels us to do. It's something He invites us to do. He says, Come and eat, come and drink, come and receive. And their unbelief is their own guilt. So though they have advantages in terms of the means being placed in their hands, are they really any better off? Well, at the end of the day, no. Because we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So at least with reference to the whole question of our culpability before God for our sin, our bondage in our sin, our, our 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 the darkness of our minds and hearts because of sin. We all start from the same place. Every human being starts from the same place. I think David acknowledged that. It says that he was conceived in sin, he was brought forth in iniquity. They were part of a fallen race. <clears throat> we all start in the same place. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. The Jews violate the law that God placed in their hands and made them custodians over. They didn't keep it. The Gentiles, they violate the law of their, of, of the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. They are too are under sin. And then Paul gives what we call a katina. Remember the word katina? A katina who can tell me what the, a katina is? Bible or Jesus. Hmm? The no, Bible or Jesus. Bible or Jesus, I'm sorry. <laughs> in this case it's neither <laughs> it's a literary device in which you take the testimonies of the Old Testament and you put them together one after another after another after another so what do you have here I don't remember how many are here I think there might be ten actual witnesses that Paul gives in verse, uh, in verse uh, 10 to verse 18 there's, there's, there's quite a number of them and you see the list of quotations that some of your Bibles would give you as to where that these are found Um, there's none righteous no not one that's Psalm 14 there's none who understands Psalm 53 I have here there's no one seeks for God that's uh, Psalm 5 that's what I have here Psalm 5 Um, all turned aside together become worthless Psalm 140 None does good. No, not one. That's uh, Psalm. I think I have 107, but uh, maybe that's, the throat is an open sepulcher. We have the throat is an open sepulcher. These are tongues to deceive. Venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and the paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We don't have really time to look up these verses. Um, we might do a little bit of that next week, because I think I remember that in the past, when I've studied this out, I came to the conclusion that the passages of the Old Testament that address these issues, at some points were talking about the covenant keepers of the people of Israel and then the people that were not. And so I think Jews and Gentiles are both reflected on in each of these passages. And I think that's part of Paul's selection of the passages that he takes and cites. Is that in the original, in the context of the Old Testament, some of them refer to the conduct of Jews, some of them refer to the conduct of Gentiles? What's he looking to do? He's looking to say they're both under sin, and this is demonstrated by the Old Testament. For it is written, for it is written. When you take seriously what these texts of Scripture says, we realize they're all under sin. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, these ten verses teach it, that both Jews and Greeks, both Jews and Gentiles, are all under sin. And then Paul makes the conclusion, verses 19 to 20. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those that are under the law. Under the law means a Jew. So that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now there's a sense in which the law speaks to the Gentile in terms of the law written in their hearts, the work of the law that's written in their hearts. So maybe it's in that sense why all people, the whole world, not just the Jew. Uh, so there's a sense in which under the law can refer to a Gentile by implication because they're not, they're not that they have the law, but they have the work of the law, that moral sense that God has placed within human nature. And the point of it all is that all arguments cease at that point. You don't argue with God in the face of the knowledge of your. I mean, what do you know? You're blind. Sin's blinded you. You think you know something? You really know nothing. You have no argument to give. How do you justify your sins? How do you. I mean, how does David justify what he did to Bathsheba? Has he justified what he did to Uriah? Had any of us really justify the things that we've done, the way we've treated our loved ones, the way we've treated our children? No, that's not to say we're not great fathers and mothers. It's not to say we're not adequate in the way we've dealt with our, our, our spouses. But in the midst of all the good stuff, there's enough stuff you can look to that just makes you plum old ashamed. Before you even start to declare the merits that you have as a father, as a mother, as a worker, as you know, as just a citizen, just uh, someone in the church, I think as a pastor, I don't want God to judge me on the basis of my performance as a pastor. There's just too many times I've just I'm, I hang my head. I shouldn't have acted that way. Shouldn't responded that way. Shouldn't have said those things. Sins of commission, sins of omission, they all come up to haunt us. If we're going to try to get ourselves justified by looking at our lives before the standard of the law, that's that's ridiculous. Every mouth has to just shut up at that point. Nothing to say. There's nothing to say. Your Honor, Your Honor, I want to admit this in my defense. Nothing to admit in your defense. The whole world is accountable to God and no one has an argument to make. By the works of the law, he concludes, no human being will be justified in his sight. So through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law is given to show us our sin, expose the reality of our sin. Because the law says, don't do this and we want to do it. And and he's going to argue out in chapter 7 when he expounds the law most fully, is that even when the law comes, it stirs up our native desire to, to violate it? If I put up a sign and say, Don't walk on the grass, you know the people are going to walk by and they're going to walk on the grass. These are people, they're just going to defy it. I had some guy that came into the parking lot the other day and he was just look. He thought, I don't know if he thought it was the Bonneville Salt Flats or whatever but he thought he was going to just race his car back and forth through here you see some of the marks that he left out there and I, I just looked out there and I said you know you shouldn't be doing that here this is a church he looked at me he says hi bye yeah right nice guy <laughs> I'm thinking should I put it on the side say you know, don't, don't race don't, 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 don't you think this is a raceway no, I put it out there and people are going to think it's a raceway they're just going to defy it just out of the naughtiness of the human heart that's just how we're, what we're you know, the tendency of the human heart is and, and so the law exposes the reality of our sinful hearts it exposes the tendency um, to do the contrary and the reality that we've done the contrary we violated the law, and hence there's no way that we can come before God with our arguments. And so that's the point that Paul does brings. He brings everyone in the church to recognize none of us have anything to boast in in ourselves. We have nothing to boast in, that we're better than others. We are Jews, we have the law, you're Gentiles, you don't. Uh, you Jews, you've dishonored God and blaspheming, yes, but you're also those that have, you know, Entrusted with the oracles of God, so you can't be hating on one another. You have to respect one another, regard one another. Because we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. We're all under sin, and then grace comes, and also we're in the same boat in the way God brings us out of out of sin. And that's that's for next week. Well, I've gone past my time. Thank you for your patience. Let's commit our thoughts to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time to consider Your Word and. We're thankful for its riches. We're thankful that it probes deeply the thoughts and recesses of our hearts. And we're thankful also, Lord, that it leads us to Jesus. It leads us to see the fullness of your grace and salvation and the one you sent from the glory he had with you from the foundation of the world to, to bear away our sin and our shame, uh, to bring us who are lawbreakers to be made right in your sight, to, be, to bring us to the place where we know There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus and there's no separation from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we pray that within our own assembly we would be rid of attitudes that view ourselves as better than others. Uh, because we maybe have had more education or we've had better training or we've been in better churches or we've had better past experiences or whatever we think it is that makes us to have a step above another. help humble us before you. Humble us under your mighty hand that you would lift us up. Humble us before one another. Help us to walk in humility. As students of your word and as Christians that walk together with one heart and with one spirit striving for the faith of the gospel Help us, Lord, to, um, uh, out of the, the realization of uh, the, our grounds for true humility, to have true unity, to have true oneness in the Lord Jesus. Teach us these things. Give us understanding in them as we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.